Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Call on Demand's Answer Show live every week. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to me on your favorite streaming platform to stay up to date with the show. Also, follow me on my social media at Call on Demand's to stay updated with the show, interact with me, and tell me if you want to be a guest, and tell me what guests I should have on. Today's episode 65 with Kimberly. She's a scientist with an MS in pathology. She's also a pathology PhD student. She's studying the role of tau in development and disease. She also runs the hashtag on Instagram, Let's Talk Pathology. Take a listen. Okay, welcome back, everyone, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to Colin and Man's Answer Show. I want to say 65. I don't hold me accountable, but go ahead and introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, and everything like that. Yeah, so hi, everyone. My name is Kimberly Fiak. I'm about to start my second year of my PhD. Uh, I study experimental pathology, which is a really fancy way that, to say that I study disease, um, and I specifically focus on diseases of the brain. Diseases of the brain. So let's just jump into that. Uh, what are you focusing on right now with your research? Because if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the things that have to do with getting your PhD is you have to get published and do a bunch of research, correct? So yeah. what are you focusing on right now? You said brain pathology and things like that, disease of the brain, but what exactly are you studying right now? That's actually really funny that you asked that because I just met with my PI, uh, the principal investigator, the person that runs my lab today to talk about the direction of my project. So I now have a really good idea. Um, so my lab is really interested in a protein called tau, which is really important in the development of a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, the most well-known being Alzheimer's disease. But there are other ones like chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which people have known a lot about that. Um, it's getting more popularity because of like football players and like war vets. So if you get repeated uh, head trauma, you can experience CTE. That's also caused by the tau protein. And there are other ones called progressive supranuclear palsy and corticobasal degeneration and so on and so forth. So we're really Really interested in that tau protein, uh, not only in disease, but how it functions in the normal developing brain. Um, so tau plays a really important role in making sure that neurons are able to communicate with each other, uh, make sure that their axons are stable so that signals can, can go down through there and helps with axonal transport. And so we're interested in why um, some people get sick when they get older in disease and some people get sick in development and why some people don't get sick at all. That's fascinating. So the tau protein will just jump to Alzheimer's and CT right now. I play football. So, well, okay. I don't have as much affection of like the CT, the hits, cause I'm a kicker. So I don't get hit that much, but a lot right. of my friends, like I've had a couple of my friends who have had serious and numerous concussions. Is it, is it, so the question I have about regarding that protein and regarding CTE is, do is there a causation between the amount of concussions a person gets and whether they will not or not they will develop CTE? Is it just repeated blows? You don't even have to get a concussion, you know? Yeah, so I think that the, and I, I don't know a ton about this area of research because I focus a little bit more on the development side, but from my understanding, what happens typically when you get a traumatic brain injury, so if you're hit and you get a concussion, something like that, your brain is usually pretty stationary inside your head. And so when you're hit, your brain moves back and forth. It hits the sides of your skull, which can cause um, like shearing forces to the neurons. So it can cause damage to the neuron themselves. And neurons don't repair themselves the same way that other cells in your body do. Once neurons start to die or get damaged, they stay that way. So when you have repeated blows to the head that cause traumatic injuries, you can get buildup of toxic proteins like the tau protein that damage the neurons even further. And, and that's when you start having the symptoms of like dementia or a aggressive personality or behavior changes, things like that. It's based on the areas where you're getting the damage to the brain. 
And I'm sorry if you said this um, a couple minutes ago. You said you're focused on the de- developmental side. What exactly does that entail? Yeah. So if you think about it, like it's kind of like a spectrum. So you have your brain and you're developing normally and you have proteins and things happening to your brain then. And then as we get older, those proteins can start to have a different function. Um, They can misfold, they accumulate, and then that causes disease. So it's a spectrum like that. We tend to focus more on the developmental side of that. So understanding how this protein functions normally and how we can regulate that protein so that when you get into a disease state, we can essentially think of new treatments based on things that we know that regulate that protein's ability to do its job. Do you have any examples of that currently? Um, doesn't have to be with anything like Alzheimer's, but just an example of a developmental side where when the protein changes, how you can affect it later? Yeah, so I guess I can kind of talk a little bit about my master's thesis, which touched on this, and I won't get too into detail because it's not published data yet, okay. um, hopefully soon. But essentially what we found was that there was a particular protein that when um, the protein, when we took away that protein from the cell, it stopped producing the tau protein, which is our protein of interest. So if you think about it in that context, if a cell, as you get older, accumulates too much tau protein, that's what you see in like Alzheimer's disease. If you can find a way to turn off the cell's ability to produce tau protein at all, you could theoretically slow down the progression of the disease. And that's very, very general and very basic, but that's kind of the idea. If you can find ways to regulate the cell's ability to produce a protein if it starts to accumulate too much of it that is misfolded or working correctly or whatever else, the more you add to that system, the worse it's going to get. So if you can turn that off, you might be able to help slow down the disease. And so are not just you guys, but in general, is the research being um, done focusing on experimental drugs that would do that? Or I mean, like you could look at Elon Musk with Neuralink. Is it, is it, is it manufacturing? Is it artificial uh, wiring? Is it drugs that you guys are trying to do to stop this protein from being made? How exactly is that all going about? I think eventually it would be more like a drug target, but it's, it's very, very early on in the research and a lot has to go between seeing that something has a connection with something else to making a drug that fixes it. There's a lot of things that cause a disease. It's more than just, oh, you have too much protein. It's also the protein's not working correctly. The protein's causing other protein to misfold. Um, The cell can't clear out the protein, so the cell dies. Other cells are taking up the protein that aren't supposed to. So you can't just target one part of the pathway. You have to target multiple steps. So this would just be like one small part of this disease pathway. And I would say a lot or a majority of brain disease is, is it or is it, I guess this is more of a question because I don't know, is it um, genetically, um, like, is, is Alzheimer's, is other brain diseases, besides like traumatic brain injuries, are they genetic? Are they passed down hereditary? Or is it something that, is it specific to your own genomes? How exactly does that all work out? Because I would feel like that a lot of them are probably hereditary, right? So it really depends. So there definitely are genetic components, but there are also um, plenty of examples where it's just completely sporadic and it's random. Um, One of the best examples of this is prion diseases, which uh, the most well-known is like mad cow disease. That's called bovine spongiform encephalopathy. That can happen completely spontaneously. So it could happen to anyone at any time and there's no real predisposition to it. But there are also genetic forms of prion diseases where it's passed down hereditarily. So it really just depends on the disease. There are some families that have one person that have had AD or Alzheimer's disease and never have another person again. There are some that every single generation there's some. So it's kind of luck of the draw, which is not, we don't know exactly why sometimes it's genetic and sometimes it's not. Yeah, that makes sense. And something that fascinates me too is we, we tend to attribute brain 
um, the brain organ with what we have to, with our own subjective consciousness and what exists in this kind of weird, like metaphysical realm, you know, like uh, being a person almost like how you almost feel like you're sitting inside of a body. You're not part of the body sometimes. And so, sorry, a question I have for you is how does disease of the brain affect a subjective person's like um, almost like their well-being of, and how they exist and what they remember. Cause we see with like Alzheimer's people forget uh, like even their own kids and things like that. And it seems that that is way or is, would be way more connected with brain diseases because of that connection between consciousness and memory and brain function. But is it all disease? Does every disease have an effect on the consciousness when it's in the brain? Is it, does it just depend? Cause I feel like most of them would, right? Yeah, so it, and you're right, it absolutely does depend. It's all about the regions that are affected by the disease. So when we talk about diseases like Alzheimer's disease or other dementias, those are going to be affecting the hippocampus, which is where memories are stored and created and so on and so forth. So when you're hitting the hippocampus really hard and you're getting rid of or killing all of the neurons in that area, that's why you have problems with memory. Versus if you have something like CTE, a lot of times there are behavioral components to that, um, behavioral changes, particularly with a aggression. Those could be other areas of the brain. Uh, I don't know, again, specifically which areas are affected, but I know that usually with disease, when you see like clinical symptoms that you're talking about affecting consciousness and memory and thoughts and so on, it's all about where the disease is actually hitting in the brain. And obviously most of them would hit different specific places. So right now you say you're focusing on uh, developmental diseases besides what we're talking about right now, what are some other diseases that you were specifically like studying and what is so interesting about them to you? Yeah. So I'm actually starting to shift my project a little bit away from development and normal function into looking more at what we call primary tauopathies. So Alzheimer's disease is actually a secondary tauopathy, meaning that it, tau itself is not the only uh, protein that causes the disease. So with AD, you also have beta amyloid, which is the other big player. And that's kind of making a lot of waves right now because of the new drug that just came out that targets beta amyloid. So tau is kind of like the understudy and the, the less well-known child in that disease, if you will. But there are a lot of diseases that are actually primarily tau focused, um, particularly progressive supranuclear palsy or P PSP and corticobasal degeneration, which is CBD. And what makes these different is actually astrocytes, which are another type of cell in the brain, are predominantly affected rather than neurons. So with AD, we think about neurons being the primary um, degeneration versus in PSP and CBD, you see astrocytes, which are accumulating this tau protein and it's causing problems with astrocytes being able to do their jobs. That's fascinating. Yeah, and a lot of the, because, okay, I mean, you had to have studied the brain going forward, like going in the backwards in your, in your studies. So just like for a, like a quick clarification, the brain is, there's very many parts of the brain. So that, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not a, a brain scientist. I, I study political science, philosophy, and I'm going to law school. So I, I did the, the more, the, the more society kind of things, but there's a, there's the cerebrum. See, because I always hear these, there's like, the, you said there's the hippocampus, there's the prefrontal cortex, there's like, and then there's also like, are those parts of like the cerebellum, the cerebrum? Can you just give me a little bit of brain anatomy real quick so I can understand yeah. exactly what you're talking about? I'm sure yeah, some so people would love for that too. 
No problem. So it's going to be obviously really hard without a brain. So if you think about like your main big brain or your cerebrum, there's different structures within that. So things like the hippocampus, the amygdala, you know, thalamus, basal ganglia, all of those kinds of structures that we think of, those all predominantly live in your your larger brain. Then we have the small brain that sits kind of on the back of your your neck, which that's the cerebellum. Um, That in and of itself has its own functions, but that's predominantly things like um, cardiac function, a lot of your like basic needs for survival. So like your ability to like breathe and have a heartbeat and, you know, talk and sneeze and all those other things that's kind of connected there. So it's more like basic function. And then you have your brainstem, which also has a lot of function. It's a lot of neurons that are running up and allowing like your cerebellum and your cerebrum to like communicate with one another. So most of the structures live in like your big brain and then your cerebellum has its own little functions and then your brainstem have functions as well. And that connects to your spinal cord and so on and so forth to the rest of you. And what fascinates me about all of this is that I, I once heard that your eyeballs are part of your brain too. And, and also like, if you really think about like your nervous system, it all starts right here. And some people get, when they get damaged to their, um, the top of the spinal cord, I can't think of what it's called. It's like all of their nervous system goes out of whack. And it's almost like the systems at play have to be so perfectly balanced or else you'll be almost washed up. So the disease you guys study is mainly, is it mainly developmental, like your own, your own body's uh, developing the diseases rather than you, like, obviously, I don't even know if those are called diseases when you catch something or like cancer, do you guys study brain cancers, things like that? So I know exactly what you're talking about. So first of all, I guess I should have clarified when I say development, I mean like as your brain is developing in utero. So Mm -hmm. we're looking at as neurons are actually forming the brain, what role is tau playing in that? Um, But there are diseases that you catch. Those are called acquired diseases. Um, Cancer is typically not something that you acquire. It's more something where you have a process in your body that goes awry. You have cells that divide um, unnaturally and they keep dividing and it doesn't get turned off. So we don't actually look at cancer in my lab, but that's absolutely something that could be looked at in my field. So the field of neuropathology is really vast. It covers cancers. It covers neurodegenerative diseases and it covers those acquired diseases. So if you catch like a parasite or a virus that makes its way into your brain and causes neurological problems, that's absolutely covered by my field. So a a real question that I have is I don't really understand how Alzheimer's kills someone at the end. Um, I know it's like, it, it almost like breaks down the brain, but how does Alzheimer's actually kill someone? Because it almost seems like it's, it's really hard to, when you're not studying this stuff to understand how a disease of a brain that almost breaks down or through protein and things like that actually specifically kills someone. Cause when we think about death, we're thinking about something that's affecting you personally and almost like stopping your heart, you know? So how does Alzheimer's and other brain diseases specifically kills a person? Yeah. So I think the kind of, and again, I'm not a medical doctor. I should preface all this. with I'm not a medical doctor, um, but I think kind of the two definitions of like legal death would be like brain death. And like, like you said, like your heart stopping. Um, so when we think about Alzheimer's disease and how it essentially kills a person, um, once you start losing neurons, like I said, they don't grow back, they don't repair. So the more neuronal loss you have, the more accumulation of this toxic proteins you have in your brain, the less function you have. So eventually you get to a point where your body, your system, your organs start to shut down because they're not getting signals from your brain anymore. Your neurons aren't making connections. You pretty much lose the ability to do basic functions. And that's really what it comes down to. That Um, makes sense. It's similar in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, but it really depends, like I said, on what they affect. So back to the cerebellum, that's actually kind of an issue with balance. Um, So that can be very much affected in Parkinson's disease. Same with the brainstem, um, which is involved. I kind of mixed up 
cerebellum and brainstem. So I apologize about that with functions. Um, so cerebellum, you have this balance. Brainstem is going to be your more basic functions like breathing and um, talking, sneezing, throwing up, all of those kinds of things. Um, so when you think about Parkinson's, you have damage uh, or loss of neurons in your substantia nigra, which is in your brainstem. And that's actually what causes a lot of the problems with Parkinson's. They lose, uh, people with Parkinson's tend to lose their ability to swallow. And so they aspirate, and that's usually how they pass away, is, is from aspirating from the loss of swallow. They just lose control of those muscles. Yeah, see, that's one that fascinates me because we all know about it from Michael J. Fox, if not from someone you know. And and, and it makes sense if they're losing the function of the brainstem, why they shake so much um, because they don't have the, con the control of their body. Do we see – there's got to be a correlation between alcoholism and, and brain disease, correct? Yeah, there definitely is. That's definitely way outside my area of expertise. Um, we tend to do more of the – naturally occurring rather than something that would be acquired, but it certainly can be. And I know that there's um, a lot of research too into different like foods and what you eat can affect your brain health and different environmental factors can contribute to brain health. So there's definitely a lot of things that can contribute to whether or not you develop something. Yeah. And like, I mean, we can see like right now there's now, okay. I'm going to preface this with saying I am not, I don't study science at all. I don't study medicine at all. And I've just talked to people who do. Okay. But one thing that I, you, can, you can really for sure make an argument for is that people with comorbidities, especially with their health, have been passing away at a higher rate with, due to COVID-19. And so I think you could say that with anything, that if you have a comorbidity and you catch a disease or get, get an acquired disease, or if you even maintain a disease, um, the way you eat, exercise, all do play a role in how quick you die, if you're going to die from it, or if how sick you get from something. Yeah, I think you have to be careful. Um, there are a lot of definitely like predatory, um, not necessarily scientists, but like predatory educators who will claim like, oh, well, if you eat like this specific type of mushroom, you're going to not develop AD. And, and they'll, they'll prey on people um, with this belief that if you eat certain things or you do certain things, you will not develop the disease. And the reality is we can't know that for 100% certainty. We know that certain risk factors increase your likelihood of getting the disease, but there's no guarantees. And that's kind of the, the main theme of science. There's no guarantees. So there are specific alleles or specific genes that you can express in people that increase your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's disease, but those people don't always get it. Um, so increasing your likelihood or your risk doesn't always equate with absolute um, so I always have to like caveat people with like, yes, the things that you eat and your well-being and your health and your lifestyle, all that is really important, but there's no like one magic cure that you can do and you won't get AD. We just can't know that. Yeah. And especially with something as difficult as brain disease, like, like I go back to what I was talking about earlier. We don't really know, like we know how the brain functions. And so like we can say that we understand how, where your memories are stored and things like that, but you can't really say why you think a certain thing at a certain time, you know? And so it's, it's dangerous to say that, you know, anything can stop you from getting anything regardless of uh, a disease, but a brain disease, I feel like it would be even more inconclusive. So a question I have for you and you, this is, this is purely on me asking you as another human, just who knows a little bit more about the brain. Elon Musk Neuralink, have you done any studies uh, about it whatsoever? No, I haven't done any research. That's like way outside what's my interest. I'm interested a lot less in, in cognition and, and thought process and more in like the actual mechanisms of how things work. So I haven't done it. 
something. Because the only reason, the only thing that I thought you might have known is because I know it's. He said that it could, it could one day help patients with Alzheimer's, and I was thinking, but if you lose a neuron, right, that's a part of you that you've lost forever, and so if you then put something in you that rewires that's almost like an AI neuron, how would that regenerate something that's lost? Like you can't regenerate neurons once they're lost, correct? Yeah, I think, so there is a lot of push for regenerative medicine. And I think that's when you start to get kind of into this gray area. So like regenerative medicine is really great for particularly like retinal diseases or diseases of the eye. I know that they've had a lot of success. So you can take um, actually skin from an individual who has a disease. You can make a, it's called an IPSC or induced pluripotent stem cell line. So you can essentially reprogram their own cells to function as the cells that are missing because of a disease. Um, And they've seen some success with that. But a lot of people want to take that one step further and they're like, oh, we can just, you know, do regenerative medicine and we can fix damaged brain areas. And I think it's a lot more complex than that. I think it's even a lot more complex than rewiring your brain. I think there's a lot that goes into that. Again, not my area of expertise, but I, I think a lot of these very famous people that make these really great claims like that, I think it's great in theory, but I don't know that the science at this point in time or any point in the near future will support that. Is there a way to grow more neurons when you're when, once you lose some, or is it you can just connect neurons that already exist with different neurons, right? You can connect ones that already exist. So there is a lot of um, examples where this happens. So a lot of people, particularly with seizures, if they have um, their corpus callosum severed, so that's the white matter tract that connects your two hemispheres together, um, that can really help with seizures. And you can relearn how to do things, um, or if you have parts of your brain removed, you can potentially have the other half of your brain compensate for the things that were lost. So there's definitely a reorganization to the brain and you can learn how to do things differently. Like areas that didn't originally do things can learn to do things differently, but I don't necessarily think that you can restore things that are gone. So new things can learn to do new jobs, but you're not going to get old things to do that job. Does that make sense? So yeah. Yeah. And that's fascinating because you said like, I know that they do surgeries on predominantly like toddlers or younger than toddlers when they're having severe seizures, they cut out half the brain. Right. (laughs) And that's fascinating because I I saw one time and it was like, if you put that other half, let's say you put that other half in a, like a person that didn't have a brain, would those be two new people or how would that work? You know, they wouldn't once, once your brain has been removed, it's, it's not brain transplants. I've seen this where people are like, oh, we're going to do brain transplants and it's be this whole thing. And I don't think that would ever work. Yeah, because it's, it's really gray in that area because we just don't know. And it's also like, would it be not empathetic? That's not the word I'm thinking about. Would it be morally correct to do something like that? You know, yeah. because if you could, let's say you could do a brain transplant in the near or near to late future, right? We don't know until you would do it if like how that person would turn out, right? And it would predominantly be to start probably parts of brains, correct? But tricky because like we can go back to anything. We don't know how to gauge what a person is, right? It's a whole argument. We don't know when a person begins to be thinking for themselves and when they stop thinking for themselves. So it's like, it's this gray area, especially with Alzheimer's, because the one art thing that I was thinking is like, let's say Neuralink does regenerate and, and or there is a drug that regenerates neurons one day. 
would that necessarily still be that person though? Because it's new neurons that would learn new things. Would that the memories would never come back? So it'd be almost like a new person. Like what if would it like take over the 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 already known thoughts? And it and it becomes a gray area because we don't know. Like if someone wants their mom back who has Alzheimer's and you and you feed them new neurons, you're not going to get your mom back regardless. Probably you just get a new updated version who can remember. Yeah, I think that the gray area really becomes the advantage. So our whole goal in science is that there's some advantage to the human race or to animals or to whatever you're studying at the time. The whole goal is to find something that is an advantage. So when we talk about, you know, drugs or treatments that help give people things back so or give them more time, I think, you know, there's a clear advantage. But when you start talking about like transplanting a brain into another person's body or like giving them back neurons or something like that, you have to really weigh, like, is there actually an advantage to doing that? Are we really bettering people's lives or are we just prolonging things because we need the time? Does that make sense? Like you, you really have to gauge, is there a real advantage to the people you're trying to serve? Yeah. I think there's also a, like, I go back to what I said about moral morality. There's a moral argument. Are you doing the science to, for your own curiosity of the right. science? Or are you doing it to better society? Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the thing that we have to balance all the time. There are millions of things and ideas and, you know, that we could want to study, but really at the end of the day, you want to focus your efforts on what's actually going to help people. I mean, you have to be curious. That's a huge part of being science. You have to be curious about the things that you're doing, but you have to balance your curiosity with actually making an impact and a difference rather than just doing things unnecessarily to people or animals or whatever else just for the sake of your own curiosity. And that gets into a whole ethical dilemma. Yeah. It's like uh, the evil doctors of world war two, the Joseph Mengel, the Nazi guy and all the experimental things he did on the, um, the POWs and the, the, the Jewish people and, and how like they were doing things for their own soldiers in the war, but they were so immoral that like, you, you look at him and he's like, oh, he's the evil doctor. And he was, and he was not bettering society. He was bettering him, his own unit, which was evil. And it's like, you get into this whole, like we, like we said, gray area. It's like when, when, when it happens, when you start doing, and you can even say when you start doing animal testing at a certain degree, it becomes almost too, I don't like the word evil, too evil to even continue research. And you see that a lot, like, not that we don't like, like, not that we, um, don't care about spiders, but you see like the, like the, the experiment when they put like the different drugs in the spiders and they made them create the webs. So it's like, if you were doing that to a person, you maybe wouldn't have that bad of a thing because it's just psychoactive drugs, but it's like, when does it become like you, like, can you do it to monkeys? Can you do it to rats? What is the level of experiment experimentation? And any experiment we do in science, we weigh those, you know, those questions. And that's why there are so many like ethical review committees that are responsible for reviewing research before it's approved, you know, particularly with animals and with humans, because you're absolutely right. And scientists, it's very important that, you know, we are answering questions about the bigger picture, but we're also recognizing that if we're answering a question, what we're doing has to absolutely be 100% necessary. And we are not doing anything above that that's not 100% necessary to make sure that we're being ethical to the animals we use, which I don't use animals in my lab, so I can't really speak to that, but with human subjects to make sure that we're not putting any unnecessary stress or pressure or distress to people if they're participating in research. Um, so I think that's really, you're right, that's really the fine line we walk, but we have a lot of things in place to make sure that we really are 
being as responsible as we can as scientists. How, what does your research entail? Does it entail living, living people who have brain disease, their brains after they have passed away, the, the diseases themselves? How, how exactly do you do your research? Yeah, that's a really great question. So we kind of study in two different ways in our lab. So we're an exclusively human uh, lab. We don't use any animals. Um, and what we do in our lab is use what we call cell culture. So we use different types of cells that are immortalized, meaning that they can replicate indefinitely. So we can test different conditions. Um, so you can introduce different types of mutations that are known to cause a particular disease and answer questions about that. And then on the flip side, we actually run or help run at this point, um, a donated brain tissue bank. So when individuals both control and those with disease pass away, they can donate their brain to our um, lab or our core at our university. And we bank all of those brains and we use that tissue to answer questions as well. And we give it to other researchers who are answering questions about brain disease that may not have access to that tissue. Would you classify depression and specific mental health disease as a brain disease? Yes and no. So this is actually a really interesting question, and I think it really depends on the person. So I actually suffer from bipolar disorder myself, um, and as well as obsessive compulsive disorder. And to me, they affect my functioning. And that to me is what disease does. It affects your ability to function. Um, so I would say yes. From a pathologic perspective, it really depends. So we don't necessarily know the actual physical changes that they cause to the brain. Um, at least I don't. That's not my area of research. I do know a lot of researchers that do look at things like um, signaling and responses to different um, stimuli and like calcium channels and so on and so forth. And they look at them from that perspective. So like on a more molecular level, and they would probably classify it as disease at that point. But I think it really depends on kind of which area you're talking about. And like the severity too, correct? Because the thing that I don't I'm not really like grasping, I guess, hopefully you can help me with it, is the difference between a chemical imbalance and a neuron um, degeneration or a neuron problem, right? So like we all, in, our brain deals with a lot of chemicals, right? And they release a lot of chemicals to our body. Um, addiction would be one of the things that would go wrong with um, the chemical imbalance or depression or anxiety or, or like um, the other mental health diseases. But then there's also things like Alzheimer's and things like CTE where they're specifically to the brain's function. And so it, it, I don't really know what's the difference between do the neurons have an effect on how the chemicals were released? Are they different parts? Things like, do you know the difference? It's based on the physicality. So when we think about um, like neuropathology, if we're thinking about disease in like a physical context, like we can see disease, so we can see on a brain Alzheimer's disease. And that sounds kind of weird, but um, we look for specific markers, like I was talking about, those proteins, and we can tell when neurons are diseased or dying. We can look for specific physical signs in the brain that tell us there's a disease process at play. You can't necessarily look at a brain that has um, like depression or anxiety or any of the other like psychological disorders. You can't necessarily look at a physical brain and tell that based on looking at it. So I think that's kind of where the distinction is, where you can see physical disease processes at play versus it's more like you said, the chemical imbalances and things like that. And I don't necessarily think that after a person has passed away, if you look at their brain, you'd be able to tell. Which is kind of sad in a sense, because like, we don't know it's, it'd be, it probably would be easier to treat if we could do that. Right. And the reason, some of the reason we could 
any disease, we can learn how to treat it, even cancers, because after the fact, we have uh, medical researchers checking on how they are affected by certain um, new drugs that come out or uh, treatments, things like that, right? Yeah, I think the thing that becomes really challenging with that is the physicality of it. So we have a really hard time as a society understanding and appreciating the severity of like a mental health challenge or a mental illness or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think we have a really hard time accepting that because you're right, we can't see it. So after you pass away, that process stops and there's nothing to see versus we can concretely say, okay, if you see this protein, like that's this disease and you can be like, okay, I can link those things together and I can understand. It's very, very hard to appreciate or understand a disease if you can't see it physically. No, yeah, and it's especially when it is almost like a subjective disease. Like you can... Cancer is not a subjective disease, right? Every, you can see cancer in all the patients. You can, everybody, you can see cancer everywhere. You can see Alzheimer's correctly in the patient. But mental health is almost like a subjective. You can only see it or understand it or have a almost um, empathetic nature to it if you have felt it yourself, right? Everyone has felt anxious about something, but you don't know anxiety unless you have had GAD, right? And so it's almost like when things are subjective to a the person themselves or if they're um almost like a consciousness disease itself it's like we kind of tend to like brush it off or not even brush it off but like tend to uh brush it aside for the real the real effects of the body and like to go off something you said like you ct with um with uh war veterans i'm sure that's not the number one disease that they come back with i'm sure it's ptsd right and and finally we're seeing like uh, the trials of psilocybin with it, seeing how that works with the um, the war veterans. But for first, at first, like we we could recognize the severity of PTSD, but it was like almost like not not the number one right for veterans. Yeah, I think the the really problem that I feel like I face as a disease researcher is kind of that that place where I'm at. You're exactly right. Like I experience these things myself. So I experience bipolar disorder. I experience OCD and I have those things, but also at the same time, a lot of my work and what I do revolves around physically being able to see a disease and see a process happening at play. And, you know, and that does happen with, with a mental illness. You do see a process at play with like those chemical signaling and things like that. And we can model that with cells. It's just, it's very hard sometimes I think to balance disease because disease seems so all-encompassing but it's there's there's kind of defined lines with it where you know one thing is more like a physical process that we're seeing like actual signs that we're attributing to the disease rather than the chemical imbalance and and everyone experiences it differently and your chemical imbalance could be slightly different than someone else's but they're still under the same umbrella and how do we define that rather than like i know if you have tau deposition in this part of your brain you have this stage of ad it's a lot harder to do that definitively with mental illness and that's kind of what separates science or physical science what they call them biology uh chemistry things like that with psychology right um which is almost fascinating because they're almost acting on the same thing since if you have a brain disease you would your psychology would be entirely different than if you were healthy, correct? Yeah, and, and go together. Yeah, and I feel like a lot, not a lot of people, though, realize that everything kind of plays a role. Like, we can go back to what we said about being um, 
not now we're not going to say you're not going to do disease if you act healthier than you are but you know if you are living a healthier lifestyle chances are you'll be a happier person and that's not always the case because of like we were talking about mental health issues and things like that and or cancer just comes at you sometimes you know or, or alzheimer's could be a genetic thing but or if you played football you could ct could be right around the corner but it's almost like everything kind of plays in line science psychology all of that stuff and if people tend to just be like if they tend to separate like the psychology of who you are as a person with what your body is. And I think that's kind of dangerous because if you're not in tune with what your body is health and mental wise, then you're kind of not really healthy. Right. Yeah. I think we as humans very much like to draw lines in the sand. We like to very much compartmentalize things and we very much like to see things in black and white. We don't like to see a gray area. That's very hard for us to understand. And so I think you're right. All those things kind of play together. It's very easy for us to draw a line saying, okay, this is a, a hard science is what people call them. Chemistry, biology, et cetera, et cetera, versus like a soft science, like psychology, philosophy, things like that. And so people are like to draw a line saying, okay, this is science and this is not, but they work together. So I have a degree from undergrad in neuroscience and psychology because both of those things go very well together. If you're trying to understand the brain, cognition and behavior and our reactions in social situations, that's neuroscience too. They go together. You can't really separate those things because we as humans, the processes that are working in our body cause responses to our environment. That is what we study in psychology. So this is probably, it's, it's going to sound like a dumb question, but it's not a dumb question because nobody knows and you might have a better answer to it. We all know that the brain controls everything that we do. But how exactly does the brain work? What is the brain's primary function? Is it keeping your heart beating? Like, what is, does it do everything? What is the brain as an organ's primary function in the body? I mean, I would, I'll speak from my own personal opinion on this. I won't speak for everyone else. Um, I think it's responsible. It's, it's responsibility. It's job is to do everything. Um, I think, but you're right. I don't think we really know. So we know a lot more than we used to about the brain, but we don't know everything. I mean, there's, so much information that's being discovered every day about how the brain works normally. Um, I think we know a lot more, in my opinion, about disease and how the brain is like dysfunctional than we do about how it actually normally functions. So I think it's responsible for keeping us alive, keeping everything going. But there's got to be more than that. There's got to be a reason that we are conscious and can make thoughts and have feelings. Like all of that has to be for a reason because there are animals that don't. There are animals that have brains and their brain keeps them alive and they are fine with that. And they don't have complex thoughts like we do. Um, so there has to be a reason that some brains have these complex abilities that others don't. And evolutionarily, like you would, it would have been, it would have been filtered out by now if it was not important. Right? right. And I was hearing this argument not too long ago and they were like saying that, um, consciousness could be just an evolutionary feature that helps us like not kill other humans and like live as a better society. But it's like, it's like almost trickier than that. Cause it's like, it had to have some severe, if it, if it was, if it did develop evolutionarily, it had to have some severe effect on how humans live, a severe benefit on how humans live because it would have been filtered out. It's the same thing like dreams. Like why do we first off sleep eight hours a night and it has 
it's second and has a severe um, effect on your mind if you don't dream. And, and three is like we dream and you have this out of body experience while you're sleeping. And it's like, no one can answer those questions, but they're so evolutionary needed or they would have been filtered out. And it's like, we can't explain, let alone what consciousness is, let alone why you transport into your own mind when you're sleeping. Well, and I think that's the great thing about science. You know, if we knew all of the answers, I think it would be very boring to be a human. Like, I think we would be like, okay, well, we're done now. Like, part of being a human is our curiosity and our wanting to understand how things work. So I think that's what makes science interesting is that I don't think we'll ever have the answer to those questions. There, And if we do get the answer to those, we'll have 10 million more questions. So I don't think we'll ever stop learning. And I think that is what keeps us engaged. And that is what makes life interesting that's what makes it worth living is that there's always something new that you can ask and you'll never have an answer for everything and i think that's cool it's hard to be not curious when you're floating on a rock in vast space and you're a thinking primate right that's 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 the whole thing you have you go back to um what's his name i don't know if you watch joe rogan but he says this all the time he says we're, we're just we're just, we're just smart monkeys. Like we're not even that smart. Like who, who knows? Like if, if an advanced species saw us, like we have the ability to nuke our entire selves, but we just don't do it. And it's like, we humans are fascinating. Like we were these smart, we're these smarter like primates that figured out how to mana, like uh, manifest different things in their environment. But we still know not even a fraction of what we could know. And yeah, that's, you're right. It does make life worth living. It makes life fun too, because one of my favorite things is like talking to people like you who are just way smarter than me and ex- almost experts in their, in their um, field because it just blows my mind because I know nothing regarding these topics. And it's like, I know very little. Like I know about the brain, like sure, it has neurons, but I don't know about, I, like I know you hear about CT or you watch Will Smith's movie about concussion, but you don't really know what they are. And I've never heard tau the protein before. Now I know it's stuck there forever, but it's like, it, it, it's the uh, curiosities like we all want to know and i also think that's why documentaries on like netflix are so popular because everybody is so curious especially about the human body space our earth is i'm sure is so popular like the, the animal ones we all want to know and we no one knows yeah i think the really cool thing that i love about my field and honestly why i started my instagram page to get more exposure to my field is that we all know these abstract and I put abstract in air quotes, abstract concepts of disease. Like we know Alzheimer's and, you know, you lose your memory and we know CT and you've heard of these things, but you don't really know what does that look like in the brain. And so that's what I love about my field is that you can take this complex like experience that happens to an individual when they're losing their memory or having this disease process and you can put concrete things to it. You can say, I can see what this disease looks like. And I think that's incredible that we, we know we can look at disease in a brain. Like we can see that. And I think that's what I love about my field and why I kind of chose to pursue, pursue this rather than something more like psychology, where it's like, you can't necessarily put that experience onto like a physical thing that we can see. And that's really hard for me to grasp. So I like that we have this abstract experience of disease and I can put it with something physical in my brain that's actually happening. So we've touched on a couple of the, the more popular brain diseases and some of the ones that you're studying. What are some other brain diseases that you're studying? And maybe they're not as well known or maybe they're well known, but like 
we haven't touched on them yet. What are some other brain diseases that you're working on in your lab or in your So research? that's really the only ones that we work on in our lab, but the ones that I'm really interested in, what got me interested in this field was actually prion diseases. And I talked about it a little bit earlier, but they're a really, really interesting group of diseases because they, they do all of the things that we think about when we think about disease. So they can be acquired. So you can eat something that is tainted with a prion disease and get a prion disease yourself. They can be sporadic. So they can literally just happen to any random person and they can be hereditary or genetic. And I think that is crazy because I don't think there's any other diseases out there that can do that. And they're completely 100% fatal. There is no cure. There is no way to treat it. You cannot get rid of a prion. So the prion protein is a normally occurring protein in your brain. Um, it's just doesn't really, well, we don't really know what its function is normally, but it ends up misfolding and that misfolding conformation of the protein causes the disease. And that form of the protein is called the scrapey form of the prion protein. Um, and it affects other animals, which is even more insane. So you can get it. So a cow can get a prion disease and you can eat that cow and then you can get a prion disease and it's different than the prion disease that the cow had. And so it's transmissible amongst species. And I think it is one of the most underappreciated diseases out there, in my opinion. I just think they're so fascinating and there's no cure and there's nothing you can do and you have it and you have like, depending on the disease, like a year to two years max and that's it. And there's, there's no treatment. There's palliative care maybe. And, and that's it. So you said mad cow is one of those, right? Yes. What other, what are some other examples of prion diseases? Yeah. So you have scrapie in sheep. That's the original one that was first described. Um, in humans, you have Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Um, you also have GSS, which is um, another variant of that. And then you have FFI, fatal familial insomnia. That's a hereditary version. There's actually a family. I'm reading a book on this right now. There's a family in Italy um, that everybody in their family gets the disease or it's like 50, 50 chance. So like every generation, they have so many people in the in the family. Um, so they're trying to figure out that genetic link. And that one's really um, fascinating because unlike the other ones, they, people actually stop sleeping. That's the disease. They end up staying awake. Their body cannot go to sleep. Um, and they literally die from lack of sleep. Okay. Hold on. How does that, do we know anything? Do you know anything about how that works? Like I think it's something to do with damage to the thalamus, which regulates your body's like ability to have like homeostasis. Um, so I think that's what it is. I don't know a ton about it. Um, I'm still reading up, but I just think that's wild. That's literally what happens. Like they just stop sleeping and they go crazy. No. And see, that goes back to the sleep argument. Why do we sleep? I mean, it's obviously for regeneration and things like that, but then why do you dream on top of that? And it's like, and, and the fact that, that there's a disease that can cause people to stop sleeping and it's genetic, can you catch that? Probably not, right? Mm, I don't know. Not FFI, but other, other um, ones you can, like Creutzfeldt-Jakob, they have a variant version that is acquired. So it's not necessarily catch, it's more acquired. You have to eat something that's tainted mm. with it, or they think that, um, and I don't know how well this is researched, but like if someone um, passes away or has a prion disease and they do like surgery or an autopsy and then use those tools on like another patient, um, it's thought that you could transmit it that way through like um, surgical tools. So a lot of times if um, an individual has a prion disease and has a surgery or something like that, they'll just throw away those tools. Um, so there's that. There's also like chronic wasting disease is a big one that people need to be concerned about uh, because it affects like deer and other species that we would hunt. So like elk and things like that. So that's always a really big concern because if there's an animal that has chronic wasting disease and you shoot it and you eat it, 
you can develop a prion disease as well. So I think that's crazy. And I think there's some feline forms. So cats, there was like an ostrich that had a prion disease. I don't know how well reported that is, but. What is that one um, in the deer that you were saying? What, what is that disease? How does it affect humans? What is it? Yeah. So chronic wasting disease, it's essentially a prion disease that affects deer and elk and, and things in that kind of a family of animals. Um, and it affects them kind of the same way that humans do. So the buildup of this misfolded protein causes the breakdown of the brain and other systems. Um, and they die from that. I don't necessarily know the clinical symptoms that they would have it because they're deer and they wouldn't talk to us, but I, <laughs> I don't, I don't hunt. So I don't know if it's obvious from, um, looking at them probably. So I know with sheep who get scrapey, um, they actually, it's called, it's called scrapey because they would scrape themselves against a fence. Like they had kind of an imaginary itch and they would literally scrape all of their skin off of their body trying to itch and they would scrape and scrape and scrape until they literally died from scraping themselves so much or getting an infection or something like that. So I imagine that if chronic wasting disease, I think they waste away. And so they look really, really, really sick. Um, that's what I think is, is the symptom, but I don't know the actual like clinical, what the deer would experience. And so how do, do we know how these animals get these prion diseases? Are they genetic or are they, do they have to eat something? I think a lot of times it's just sporadic. Um, I know in sheep, the story that I'm reading about in the book, um, I think it was from inbreeding. So they would have one that would like sporadically get a prion disease and then they would continue to breed it with other sheep. And then I think it became genetic that way. Um, but there are human instances where it's actually acquired. Um, there was a disease in a specific population of people that's now, the disease itself is extinct, but it was called Kuru. Um, and it was essentially a population of, it was a cannibalistic ritual to eat individuals that passed away. And I think what happened was there was maybe a spontaneous um, occurrence of the disease and then the individual would pass away. They would eat parts of the individual's organs, uh, particularly the brain as part of their like funeral religious rites. And then that would cause the next person who ate that brain or the next couple people to acquire this disease. And it kept going because they kept doing that, not knowing that it was causing this disease that was killing all of them um, simply by participating in this funeral, right? So we always hear that, you know, us lay people, that mad cow disease, it, you can really get it if you eat brain. Is that because it's a brain disease? And can you also get it from just eating the meat of a cow? Uh, it's definitely a brain disease. So you definitely would get it from eating the brain. I think that it's I don't know for sure if it's from eating any other part of the brain, but I do know that if they suspect it, they just get rid of the animal altogether. They don't want to take that chance um, because once you start having an outbreak of something like this, it's very hard to control. Um, these diseases, like I said, are completely fatal hundred percent of the time. And once people start acquiring them, you can't necessarily control who's going to develop one or who won't, and you can't treat it. So if there's even a suspected um, prion disease or outbreak of mad cow disease, they just get rid of all the cows. And what is mad cow disease? We, that was like one of the first prion diseases. You said scrapie, obviously that was found, but mad cow disease is like the most famous one, correct? And yeah. um, what exactly happens in humans and in cows? So essentially, like I said, there's that prion protein that functions somehow as a normal protein. Um, and there's something about it that starts to misfold and it forms a toxic conformation that causes other prion proteins in the brain to misfold as well. And the body can't clear those out. And so um, you get an accumulation of all of these toxic proteins and that just causes organ failure and the, the body to shut down. 
And that happens in, in cows and in humans. So if you eat that, if you acquire that misfolded protein, it has the ability to misfold the other proteins in your brain. That's why it's so scary um, if you have like an outbreak of mad cow. And we take that very seriously because that misfolded protein can misfold all of the other proteins in your brain and there's no stopping it once that happens. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, I was talking to a virologist and he was, we were talking about rabies and how crazy rabies is and how like 99.9% .9 of people who get, who get the rabies, who get rabies die. And I was like, that's so crazy. And that's one of those other, that's an actual virus that's transmitted through um, dog, usually wild dog and or not rabid dogs, what they call it and humans. And it's fascinating because with those, I mean, well, okay, I'm going to be very careful with what I'm saying right now, because there is that whole lab leak thing going on right now. COVID, it came from, a, coronaviruses come from other animals, correct? Just in general, coronaviruses. I will not speak on that because I'm not a virologist and I don't want to say something incorrect. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm just talked to a um, Kenan, who's my friend who's a virologist. He was telling me that they do coronaviruses. Usually they don't have to, but they do usually jump from animal to person. And that's fascinating because it's like, we always attribute like, oh we're humans so like we're like these things that are like different from the other animals but it's like a lot like you're saying like there's a lot of diseases that we get specifically from other animals and plants and things like that and so it's like it's almost like there's this there's this weird thing about diseases that you, it, it's not it's kind of inter interspecies but it's also like inter like it can affect all types of animals all types of living organisms the same way as it affects humans yeah. Well, I think the scariest thing about prions is that it's not a virus. It's not a bacteria. So we know how to treat or combat those things. We don't know how to fix a protein. Like that is just a very, very stable, functional part of our bodies. And we have tons and tons and tons of different types of proteins. We have no idea how to treat that. So I think that's the scariest part about it. I mean, with viruses, luckily we're able to develop vaccines and a lot of times we can, you know, eradicate a virus, but how do you eradicate a protein? Are there natural occurring proteins in the human body besides the ones that tau ones that cause Alzheimer's and dementias um, that cause disease in humans? Yeah, so it's actually thought that tau functions in a similar way to the prion protein. Um, Alpha-synuclein, that's uh, typically associated with Parkinson's disease, it's thought that that also is um, a prion-like protein, so has the same ability to propagate or spread. Um, but there's lots of different proteins, and a lot of it comes from like gene mutations. So the, the gene has a mutation that either affects the um, type of protein that's produced, or it produces non-functional protein, or there's a loss of protein because of the gene mutation um, but there's there's so many different diseases huntington is another one um, that has a that's a genetic mutation where i think the huntington protein is not produced don't quote me on that because i don't study huntington's disease but there's a lot of different gene mutations that can affect uh, the proteins that are produced what's lou gehrig's disease do you know what that is yeah, so that's ALS. So that is also um, similar in, in it's also a neurodegenerative disease. I believe it falls also into a similar family as TDP43. I think that's the protein that causes it, um, which is also kind of like tau. Yeah, because I was, I was like, there's that baseball player. I was like, oh, it's Lou Gehrig, because I remember the ALS bucket challenge. I don't yeah. know if you, and I was <laughs> like, so how does, how does that, um, that just, is it, is it just an overbuilding of the protein that just the same thing makes your muscles wear away? Uh, 
I don't know 100%. That's a little bit, like I said, outside of my area. So I don't want to comment and say something wrong. I think that that could be how the process works. Um, a lot of times with neurodegenerative disease, a lot of it is just there's a buildup, like you said, of, of toxic protein or protein aggregates um, is a lot of times what it is that the cell can't clear out, which causes the cell to die. Yeah, those. Now these, and I mean, they all kind of have an effect to, um, on gene mutation, like you were saying, and it seems like almost like the most prominent diseases that humans get that are not acquired, they're all protein based or gene mutation based almost, um, like all cancers are basically gene mutations, right? Like, um, and it's your ability to, your body's ability to not catch it through its like checkpoint systems. And so when you guys see something like a brain, I mean, this is out of your field, obviously, but when you guys see something like a, like a brain, because I don't feel like I know for a fact, because I talked to another uh, cancer biologist and I, brain cancer is not common. And it's, it's, it's wild to me that there are a lot of cancers that are common. Brain cancers aren't common, but other brain diseases like the ones you study are common. Do you, do you have any idea why that is? Well, um, I think it really depends on the type of brain cancer um, because a lot of times they're like metastases. So cancer happens in another part of the brain and yeah, it's yeah. the brain. Um, I think a lot of it is you have a blood brain barrier and that is a very, very strong um basically like protection around your brain to really prevent things that are not supposed to be there from entering in. Um, so I think a lot of times the reason that we talk more about, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease or, or neurodegenerative disease and things like that is because they occur in the brain itself. Nothing has to get into it. Um, and I think with cancer, I don't necessarily know why it's not as common. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think Partly, partly we focus on, on these things because they're so detrimental in terms of their um, like clinical side effects. So like dementia being a huge symptom of um, the disease for Alzheimer's disease, that places such like an economic burden on our society uh, to have to, to care for these individuals. And also the quality of life is really, really affected um, and there's no treatment. So I think that that's part that all plays into, I guess, why it gets more attention, not necessarily because it's more common, but because of all of the other impacts that that disease has. So Alzheimer's is a dementia, but dementia is not an Alzheimer, right? Correct. Yeah. Dementia is a symptom. So it's, it's a, a symptom of a disease. There are lots of different diseases that have dementia symptoms, but dementia itself is not a disease. Dementia is just, it, dementia is the symptoms of the diseases? Yeah. So dementia is the symptom of like the memory loss um, and then things like that. There can also like be behavioral changes and things like that. So it's really common. A lot of people will say like, oh, this person died from dementia. Well, that's not really a disease. That's a symptom of a disease. So most, more often than not, it's probably Alzheimer's disease. That's usually the most common dementia, but there are definitely others. Well, and also it's almost a lot. I'm not going to say it's almost certain. If you live to a certain age, you almost have always have some dementia symptoms, correct? There is definitely a natural aging process that does um, affect the ability of the body to do its normal job. So there are lots of actually um, diseases that we have like mild cognitive impairment is, is a term that is used a lot of times. So you'll see some pathology, but it's not enough to ne necessarily classify um, as like a, a severe case of Alzheimer's disease, but there is some cognitive impairment, but there may not be like a full blown amount of pathology. So there's lots of um, different terminologies for it. Yeah. And so for why, or like why does or do we know why alzheimer's and dementias occur in older people and they do not occur in 
my, people my age or your age? Yeah, that's a really great question. And that's kind of what we're actually looking at in my lab. And I think just like the, the most simple explanation, I guess, would be that it takes a long time for the buildup of these proteins to cause this neuronal loss. So it's like, you know, if one or two neurons die, it's not going to affect your function. You need hundreds of thousands of neurons to die to f- see that effect um, in the brain. So that's really, I think, why it doesn't affect necessarily younger people. You actually start to develop Alzheimer's disease pathology well before you show symptoms. So I think that's one of the really tricky things with Alzheimer's disease and treatment is that you start to develop the disease itself, so the pathology, in like your 30s or 40s, but it takes years and years and years and years of that process happening in order for you to see clinical symptoms. And by that point, when you try to treat it, it's too late because you've already been developing that pathology for 20, maybe 30 or 40 years, who knows? Um, So I think that's the really tricky thing. I think that's why we don't see it in young people. Um, Even in early onset, that's usually like 50. It's because it just takes so long to actually develop that extensive pathology. Are we doing, is there any research being done right now on how to screen for early Alzheimer's in people who are 30 and 40? Yes, there's definitely a lot of things. Those are called like biomarker studies. So we're looking for early indicators. The problem with Alzheimer's disease and really most neurodegenerative diseases is that you cannot diagnose them until autopsy, essentially. You have to look at the pathology in the brain to make a definitive diagnosis. So we're trying to find early indicators without having to actually look inside your brain. So things like CSF, cerebral spinal fluid, we're looking for different levels of protein in the CSF to see if that could indicate disease. Um, And there are other biomarkers too, but they're not super well established yet. Um, And I think mostly because it takes, like I said, so long to develop the disease that you're just not going to get those high levels of protein until it's more advanced. And that's one of the problems with CTE, right? Is a lot of those guys commit suicide and that's how they figured it out, right? Is they don't actually know until they're actually gone. And so are they, I don't know if you know this, are they getting better with screening for CT? Are they just assuming that if football players become violent when they're retired, they have CT or do you know what they're doing with regards to screening for that? I don't know what they're doing. I know that they have an understanding that a lot of the CT processing is similar to Alzheimer's disease with that deposition of tau. Um, so I think you can definitely use those two kind of as a model for each other, or you can use aspects that you're using to screen for AD potentially to help with CTE. But I don't know if there's really like a definitive screen or if they just have to wait until essentially they start to experience symptoms to kind of attribute it to something. Yeah, because the, I mean, the one that everyone's thinking right now when we're talking about this is OJ. Like when, when he finally goes, they're clearly going to do an autopsy on him to see if he, had C, he has CTE. Because they just they did Aaron Hernandez not too long ago, and he had it. Um, and it's like all those football players become violent. You can, I mean, once you can see like uh, Ray Rice, who he was the guy who kicked his girlfriend, I'm pretty sure, and Kareem Hunt, all these guys who are doing these violent crimes, um, once they die – I mean, I'm sure it's a pretty big causation if you played football since you were a kid that you have some sort of mental um, traumatic brain injury that probably is CTE. Well, and I think the really sad thing about it too is, is there's no way to intervene Um, I mean, hopefully that they can develop, you know, better helmets and technologies and things like that. But our brains really were not meant to take 
repeated impacts. We were not meant to be hit repeatedly in the head and live, you know, completely, totally normal lives. That's not how we were developed or designed. So I think it's really sad because we can hopefully develop interventions or ways to kind of reduce that impact. But at the end of the day, we were never designed for that. Um, so I know that people love and appreciate football and it's a passion for people. So I just, I think it's really hard that, you know, that wasn't how we were designed. And so there's, there's no good way to not, there's no good way to hope like stop it right now. Yeah. I took a sports ethics class. Um, and we were talking about football, the morality of uh, football, uh, and then, um, boxing and MMA and are you like is it moral or immoral to let like to to have people play those sports and they're on the one hand I love football right and I love MMA I I love I love playing football I'm obviously in the least dangerous position there is but I it's 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 a lot of fun I love watching it and so it's almost like because the NFL tried to hide CTE for a while because of how popular it is um and it's almost like we're in this gray area where the, the technology is not good enough for them people to be playing. Well, obviously fists are never getting hit in the face with a fist in a, in a kick is never going to be good. No. Let's just talk about football. For example, we, the helmets and the equipment are not up to par with what we know, but it's the number one sport in America and it's the capitalist consumer driven country. So it's like, you're not going to get rid of it. They're just going to have to tell you that you're at risk. And it's sad because it's like almost, I'm sure there's maybe a little under half, at least have some sort of brain injury by the time they're done. Yeah. Well, and I think like you said, the thing is like you can warn people, but that's not going to stop people from doing it. And are you really warning them of all of the long-term you know, complications and risks that come with CTE? So sure. You know, you get a concussion and you, you know, rest and, and you're better after the concussion and you're like, okay, I'm great and fine. But like, are you really telling people like, here are the long-term effects of being repeatedly hit in the head and having this traumatic injury, you're going to experience symptoms similar to Alzheimer's disease, but you're 30. And like, are people being really informed of, of what that decision is going to have the, the implications it'll have long-term on their, you know, functioning and well-being. And are people in a position to understand and appreciate that long-term effect. I mean, if you're recruiting kids that are young, I don't, I don't watch football, so I don't know, but I assume they're recruiting kids from high school or college. Like, are you in a position to say, okay, yeah, I understand that this detrimental thing that's happening to me now is going to affect me the rest of my life. Like, do people care? I don't know. I feel like 20 year olds are like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll risk it, whatever. It's fine. It's not going to happen to me. So I'm like, you know, are you, you're consenting them, but are they really fully capable of understanding what that impact will look like for the next 50 or 60 years at 20. Yeah. You tell a 21 year old, 22 year old that they're going to be make million millions of dollars, but they might have a brain injury when they're older. They're taking the millions of dollars in the fame. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really sad because it's, that's just, that's, I think it's just, I just think that's unfair, but at the same time, Hopefully, like I said, we can use the knowledge that we're learning from Alzheimer's disease to help with CTE and vice versa so that maybe we can make things better. Um, and you think about like people who are, are veterans in war and the, the great sacrifice that they're making and these side effects for them. And, you know, they're consenting to those things. But again, are they fully aware of those things that they're consenting to and the long term impact? Or is it just, you know, like this could happen, but maybe not. So, you know, come do it anyways. That's what I, I guess I would worry about. 
Yeah, it's a it's a tricky, it's a slippery slope too because it's like you don't want to make uh, you don't want to make decisions for people in their lives, but you also want to, especially from your point of view, your science point of view, you don't want to make a decision for somebody, but you want to give them the best opportunity to live the best life, right? Right, and you want to give people the most informed, the most knowledge that they can to be informed. But how, if you're not a scientist, how can you really fully appreciate? what these things do to your body or your brain or what that disease is like. I think that's just really hard. I mean, I struggle with that too. I'm in a very small niche field of neuroscience. So like with everything that's going on with like COVID, for example, like I don't always feel informed, you know, by myself, just with my basic knowledge to make these decisions about how these things will impact my life and so on and so forth. So I look to other experts in that field. And so I think, you know, who is explaining to them, you know, if, is it their manager who wants them to be a multi-million dollar football star? Or is it like a scientist or a doctor who's actually an expert in this field explaining to them these long-term consequences? Because that's, you're going to get different types of knowledge from different types of people. That's funny. I, uh, I, I don't know if you've heard anything about the ivermectin thing going on right now. So there's a large subsection of people who are saying like medical um professionals who are saying that ivermectin is a is like really good at treating covid and that there are people are hiding it because there's not enough money in ivermectin and there's like been a whole bunch of stuff like not studies but there's been like a whole bunch of people come out and say it and a lot of people are getting censored from youtube and things because of it and so i i dm my my the science people that i've had on here and i was like hey um do you guys know anything about this and like and they were just like yeah this is this is bs and they would like send me like things and i was just like that's it's cool that i have that outlook now that i can actually ask experts in fields regarding things so i'm just not because i think one of the things that we're all struggling with right now is misinformation you can find any article anywhere that that is um competing with your perspective or supporting your perspective and with regarding anything you could look up is chicken a uh, a fish and you probably could find an article that says that yes it is a fish and that's not that's not a healthy one for society and that's not good too, because it's not, we want to know, you want to learn true science. You don't want to learn fake science. And one thing that I think is happening with COVID is not only is it like everyone making it become political, but it's also like misinformation. What is, what is real? What is true? I want to know the real science behind everything, you know? Yeah. And I think the important thing with that is making sure that the sources are equipped uh, to respond in a, a factual way. So, you know, I've worked in, in pathology, which works with disease. And so I've had a lot of people come to me and they're like, answer all these questions about COVID. And I have to say, I'm not the source to get information from. I, this is not my area of expertise. I don't know. And I don't want to give you the wrong information. So here's some other people that are actually equipped to tell you the right thing. And I think that's the making of a true scientist is admitting this isn't my area. I don't know. And I don't want to tell you the wrong thing. So I'm not going to, you know, comment on that. And I, you probably noticed I did that a lot during, during this podcast. And I think that's really important to be authentic is to admit as a scientist, I don't know everything. I don't know everything about my own field, let alone fields that aren't mine. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for me to be authentic and accurate in that 
I'm not going to comment or say things that I don't know to be true because I don't want to spread that misinformation. And there are some scientists who just don't have that attitude. They're like, I'm a scientist or I have a PhD or an MD or whatever else. And I'm going to comment on every field and tell you what I think about it. And it may not be true. And people will believe it because they don't know. They assume, oh, they have a, you know, an advanced degree, a medical degree or whatever. They must know what they're talking about. Having a medical degree or a PhD does not make you an expert on every field. It doesn't make you an expert on your own field. Um, so you shouldn't be commenting on things that you don't have enough knowledge to respond to accurately. Yeah, I was going to say that. I was going to be like, man, you scientists, you all say, um, you will be like, I don't know. I, I have no idea that because when I'm talking to like other people who are, not that they're lay people, but they're like, maybe they're creative people or they do other things regarding, um, they don't, they don't study they're not an expert in something, right? They're not studying something like at a high level, like a PhD. They just ramble on about everything, anything and everything, except for what they're an expert in. When it, when it, gets to, when it comes to what, like, what they're talking, when, when they want to talk, like, oh, I don't really know that because they don't want to step over, step their boundaries. But it's just like, people are so funny because it's like scientists are like, no, I have no idea. But I, I haven't met the people who are like overly talkative, you know? But the ones I have interviewed have been like, or talked to have been like, I have no idea. And that's, it's good that you guys are like that. Cause you don't want to put anything out there. That's like false that you know, to be false, but you just want to say something. And I think there are a lot of people who do that. A, a lot of people who do that. Politicians, for example, do that a lot. Yeah. I think, say, well, I think that there's always this pressure to give an answer and you feel it a lot in grad school. Like there's always a pressure to give an answer to every question you're asked. And sometimes the best answer is just, I don't know, or that's not something I know now, but I am happy to look it up and have a discussion at a later time. Like that's a perfectly valid and acceptable answer, but there's a pressure to always give a response and take a guess. And sometimes that's really harmful and dangerous. So I think the best thing that we as scientists can be equipped with is the answer, I don't know. Well, that's a good way to end it. Thank you for coming on. That was a lot of fun, actually. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Episode 65 with Kimberly. You know, if I can give you guys one piece of advice on this show, it's go out and have a long conversation with anyone. You'll see how interesting everyone really is. And you'll learn, you'll grow, you'll realize how bad at talking people really are. And not only that, you'll, you'll start to see your own flaws and you'll start to grow. And you'll start to see that all this arguing about politics and policy and... Red versus white is doesn't matter. Only thing that matters is just being a human being and connecting with other people. But as always, follow me on my social media. Stay tuned and stay demanding. <laughs>